This recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. Always and always and continually embarrassed for you that you didn't have any place to go for spring vacation. <laughs> My excuse is I have to work. Uh, your excuse is that you just don't have any place to go. <laughs> Can you imagine anybody spending spring break in church? <clears throat> Which is the beginning of my lecture today. I've told, um, I haven't told every story I've ever told before. There are some stories that are emerging at this moment, so there'll be some new stories, but I. I've told the story before about uh, the lady in a parish I served in another place at another time who stood up in a parish meeting and asked me why we couldn't plan Easter better. Uh, <laughs> the coincidence with the school holiday, holidays bothered her. And um, it was her thesis basically that we should look every year and see when the school holidays are and then plan Easter <laughs> to, to fit with that. It's difficult in uh, this Passion Sunday, Palm Sunday, uh, emanating then a holy week of the Passion narrative unfolding with the cleansing of the temple on Monday, Thursday, Last Supper, on Good Friday, the a liturgy proper for Good Friday, Holy Saturday with the Easter Vigil, and then the Great Vigil on Sunday, it's difficult for us to hold our spiritual feet to that fire when uh, this is a time of year when people go to Daytona Beach <laughs> or Acapulco or to Aspen. Uh, I was chastised uh, a bit for a lecture I gave uh, this winter in Advent, in which I'd come, been asked in the middle of Advent to come and give a Christmas message, and it, and I accepted it, uh, but took the opportunity to say that everybody wants Christmas before it's time, and did a fairly repressive, if not depressive, lecture. <laughs> And some were not amazed. <laughs> and so it is this time of year. It's very difficult for us when the secular culture is um, drinking beer and running into the sea. And um, here we are emanating the most holy week in the calendar of our liturgy and where everything else in culture is unaware of it. I saw somebody that I respect and admire for her own devotion to the church about two weeks into Lent and said, are you having a holy Lent? And she said, darn, I knew I'd forgotten something. <laughs> now this is the nature of the society in which we live and I I guess I would like uh, to stand up tall and righteous 
and indeed then taking the next increment of delusion called self-righteousness and be a prophet uh, to chastise this culture for its inability to move in a holy week. But I don't particularly feel that way. Uh, particularly since my son's in Acapulco. <laughs> Refusing a beer and running into the sea. that as it may, what I do feel like is to say that those of us who have gathered together ought to have a new consciousness, an increment of new awareness, if it's possible, uh, at this time and place to open that aperture of consciousness, just one increment, and look at the possibility that this week would have real spiritual and psychological implication for us, because it is the week of the rejection and death. Now, if either of those is a problem for any of you, listen carefully. The only town in Oklahoma in which I ever grew up was called Drumwright. And my father used to spread out every week, he was a traveling man, uh, throughout uh, the surrounding towns, Pawhuska and Blackwell, Hominy and Stillwater. Perry, Blackwell, selling products for a major oil company. Now, my father carried a lot of residual guilt about the fact that he was pulled away from his family. And one of the ways he exorcised or assuaged his guilt was to come home bearing gifts. My mother and my father had a real relationship for a real long time. And when he would come home bearing the gifts, um, it somehow would erode the stability that she had created in his absence. And so there was great celebration when he came home from my brother and me, particularly over the gifts he brought, many of which she thought were either indulgent or inappropriate. She was right generally on both counts. One of the most appropriate things my father ever did, in spite of himself, was to bring me a doll when he came home, because I wanted one, age three, uh, not near into my adolescent need for identity as a sexual being known as a male. I wanted a doll, and so my father brought me one, and I called it my daddy doll, which uh, is why I'm so incredibly healthy and mature now. <laughs> Little did they know how far ahead of their time they were to allow me to live into my own nurturing side at that early age. But one of the things that, that my father brought home one time brought my mother great chagrin, and I remember even now in the dark at the top of the stairs, them having animated conversation about the gift my father brought to my brother and me. And the gift was I'm beginning now to tell that which is most personal, which will become most universal. Because each of you has been heir of this gift at some time in your life, and I think it is a living metaphor for a holy week. 
my father brought to my brother and me one half dozen Easter chickens. <laughs> Colored, dyed Easter chickens. Lovely, small, you could hold one in your hand. Fuzzy Easter chickens. Blue, green, orange, purple. Now, as God would have it, uh, and as my mother engineered it, it's amazing how much those two had in common as I grew up. <laughs> what God had in mind was always managed by my mother's feminine manipulation. She put the Easter chickens out on the back porch. You remember back porches? Those are not those concrete poured squares that you step outside on now. They were real back porches. And you needed a back porch because you had several things out there. On the back porch you had a refrigerator, you remember. You had a day bed. I always thought that was a great term, day bed. As a matter of fact, in the afternoons when it was hot, in spite of the youthfulness of my face, I was born before air conditioning. <laughs> we did get a water cooler when I was about in the fifth or sixth grade, and it brought momentary relief and green film over your shoes. <laughs> it mildewed everything in the closet, for those of you who are too young to remember, water coolers. On the back porch was also the washing machine, and uh, it was an, a great name. It was an agitator, <laughs> and had rollers. I'll never forget the time that the rat got in the washing machine. <laughs> My mother was very, very afraid of mice and rats and those kinds of things, and my father was out of town, and she came in, and my brother, as you know, is an engineer, colonel in the Air Force, academy graduate, male model of masculinity. <laughs> and there was a rat in the agitator washer. My brother figured that one out quickly. He turned on the washing machine. <laughs> We thought of that every time we put on our clothes. <laughs> Mother put the half dozen Easter chickens out on the back porch. And so my brother and I, with great excitement and great devotion and commitment to this gift, fed them for three days. <laughs> And after that, the litany that we heard in that holy week from my mother was, who's going to feed these damn chickens? <laughs> As you might guess, four of the five did not make it till Easter. <laughs> but there was a surviving Easter chicken. It was, coincidentally enough, the purple one. 
My mother grew up in a small town in western Arkansas by the name of Lincoln. My father grew up in Greenwood, which is south of Fort Smith, and he migrated north in the Depression when his father lost his grocery store to Fayetteville because my father, due to Senator William Fulbright's mother, got a job as the city clerk in Fayetteville. And so they moved to Fayetteville. But they lived in a place, and it was at a time in which my grandfather could continue, because he had been raised in a rural existence, could continue to raise chickens. And so in his house in Fayetteville, he had a little pen of chickens. And so with a surviving Easter chicken, which began to grow and to look amazingly ugly, once the... <laughs> the feathers began to prosper, they were sort of half white and half purple. By the time that we made our trek after Easter to Fayetteville, we took the Easter chicken with us to give to my grandfather to put in his chicken yard. And so when we arrived, we took the Easter chicken, and it looked rather odd, and gave it to my grandfather, and with a few appropriate responses from my grandfather, he took the Easter chicken and put it in the chicken pen with the other chickens. <coughs> the other chickens rejected this chicken because it looked so odd, and they pecked at it or ran away from it. <clears throat> my grandfather said that uh, they were not used to purple and white chickens. And the Easter chicken was much derided and rejected by the flock that my grandfather had. And so my grandfather uh, took the chicken and told me not to worry that it would be fine. As we were leaving, my grandfather w was an exceptionally imposing figure. He, like the men in our family was tall. He was 6'4", six, 6'5", six, had very straight posture, and he had, unlike other men in our family, he had a full head of white hair. <laughs> he always wore three-piece suits, and in his vest he had a large chain with a watch on it. Some of you have heard me talk about my grandfather before, how I as a three and four and five-year-old, when we would make our treks back to Fayetteville, I was greatly mystified by my grandfather's ability to control the train by his watch. <laughs> and as we would be gathered at the house, he would say to my brother and my cousins and me, come on, boys, I'm going to bring the train by. his watch out and he'd say it'll be here in just a minute. And somehow that mystery that swells up in little boys looking at their large imposing grandfathers uh, with a great pocket watch who controlled the trains uh, and my image of God has always been that and it continues today in spite of masters and honorary doctorates that still my image of God is not much different than it was when I was in the fifth grade, and that is of my grandfather, this imposing figure. 
even with the advent of feminism and inclusive language, my earliest impressions uh, still hold, and that is of God, of this great figure of grandfather. I don't know that it is an operative definition or a functional definition, but it's an image I hold, and I hold it sacred, as you do your first images of most of things. My grandfather said to me before we left, I asked him what will happen to this chicken and he said, this chicken is a special chicken. He said, this is an Easter chicken. He said, this chicken is going to turn into an eagle and fly. <laughs> well, I'm not sure my grandfather even knew, but he was carrying out for him and for me a great, deep, primordial, archetypal need. Because within this very simple story of the Easter chicken, we have the whole sense of what the gospel is about, particularly the gospel as we rehearse it in Holy Week. As we begin our own sense of recapturing that which awareness tends to want to deny with a beer and a run into the sea, is that sense of inferiority, rejection, and death that looms as a part of us both externally and internally from the time that we draw our first breath and the incumbent awareness that comes around the corner. That there isn't a human being that lives or has ever lived that isn't haunted by this sense of inferiority and rejection and the incumbent death, either the spiritual, psychological death, incumbent in a, re a rejection, or the real death, which is the canker and the bowel of all consciousness. Who among us, for one reason or another, has not had something about us that made us appear strange to our parents, to our environment, to our culture, to our school, uh, to our friends, and to ourselves? Who among us isn't somehow died with a purple dye? Now, whatever die is cast for you, it is not unique to you that you have a particular inferiority that makes you stand out. For it is true with every human being. It is as if it is part of whatever plan there is that we call divine, that each human being will have one part of him or her that is rejected and denied and remains unconscious. It's what Carl Gustav Jung called the shadow. It's that dark region. It's that rejected region of each of us. If the ego, which is the center of consciousness, is all of those things about myself that I'm able to tolerate consciously, then there must be things about me that are intolerable even to me. And those things that are intolerable even to me I keep unconscious, and they do not go away. The denial or rejection or repression does not cause something to leave. As a matter of fact, it may leave consciousness, but it does not go away. And when that which has been rejected or run off consciously if we do not know where it is, and if we do not house it or control it through consciousness, 
then it will return and the last case will be worse than the first. Or suppose that there is a portion of you that is you that has been given to you by God and for one reason or many others, your environment, beginning with your parents or surrogate parents, those who are feeding you nurture and food and identity at the same table, have rejected you for this for one reason or another, particularly and most probably because of their own inferiority. There is something in you that brought out a projection of their own darkness and they have shamed you for it. Even as I talk, I suspect that you are feeling some sense of uh, resonance with that part of you that is rejected, that part of you that is unacceptable even to yourself, that part that you have forsaken. Now, for most of us, our journey to wholeness is incumbent upon our becoming aware of that which has been repressed in us. But how can we do so? If this part of us, the names and faces may be different, but the reality is the same. Each of us carries with it some part of us that is rejected, some part of us that has been perceived by us or others as inferior, something that is outstanding about us and the thing that the ego doesn't want to be is outstanding unless it is getting gratification for such. None of us want to be exceptional unless we get gratification or a lot of money for it. There are all kinds of ways of being exceptional, you know. Somebody asked how my son was after he had been ill. I said, he's back to abnormal. To be normal is to be abnormal, and those of us who have anything about us that's exceptional, like just a hint of purple on our feathers, is a price to be paid for being exceptional. Whatever realm or range you find yourself being exceptional, you'll pay a price for it. If you make 1600 on the standard achievement tests, then you are exceptional and you'll pay a great price for it. And so it is with anybody who is exceptional, has just a tinge of purple on his feathers, and be greatly derided and rejected for that exceptional nature. And so it is with that about us that has been unacceptable because of its exception to our environment, whatever it may be. Your environment was different from mine, but at the same time, the same. And everybody in this room carries some shadowy part of personality that has been rejected. Now, if there's anything about the Jesus story this week that we need to be conscious of, it is that the Christopher, the Messiah, the bearer of God, the revealer of all that we are going to know about God in history, the bearer of the truth of the nature of being human and God's nature within human nature, that is the one who was perceived by his culture 
by his peer group as being inferior because of his exceptional nature. And the one who was rejected. Now, if that isn't difficult enough, because we have somehow in our own uh, sense of uh, spring vacation, think of Jesus as King, Lord of Lords, with the Alleluia chorus ringing in our ears with the goodness of life as we run into the sea, we forget Holy Week. As we want to run around Advent to get to Christmas, we like birth and we don't want to go through any labor pains. So it is with Easter. And I see everywhere in newspapers and on the radio beginning about a month ago, this our Easter season. It is not Easter season. It's Lent. And Lent is the time to prepare to get in touch with our own dust nature, to prepare for our own death and the fact that we crucified Christ. Now, easy it has been for our culture to blame the Jews. And when the great black spiritual were you there when they crucified my Lord, when that question is asked, the answer is yes, we were there. And so the King of King and Lords of Lord of Lords is the one who is the ironic Christ, the Messiah, who doesn't come in on the golden chariot ushering in finally Israel back into its kingship and does not expel the Roman occupation, but the King of King and Lords of Lords is the one who comes in riding on an ass. And further, he is the one who goes into the center of power of his own people, the temple, turns over the tables, which is a wonderful metaphor for what he is about to do on the tree of Eden, when he turns everything upside down. And he does so with human, legitimate anger. Remember when we talked several months ago about Christianity's rejection of instinct? And one of the gods of instinct that the Greeks had was the god Pan. And Pan now has been made into the devil because Pan had the cloven hoof and the horns. And one of the natures of Pan was rage. Another word for that is called panic, from which we get the word panic comes from the Greek god Pan. And so what have the Christians done with rage? Well, that's a rhetorical question, and you have to answer for yourself, but some of the meanest people I know are Christians. Remember what Updike said in uh, Roger's version, he said it's them people with faith that kills, not the people who doubt. One of my fears about religion is that it is a compensation for so many things, and one of the things that comes with institutional religion is a sense of superiority. And that sense of superiority requires, by definition, inferiority. And so any who are not like you are, by definition, inferior. 
And the best way to deal with them is not to be in touch with your own inferiority that's projected upon them. The best thing to do with them is to eliminate them. To be enraged. And so we kill people politely now rather than being enraged. People who love each other don't get angry, you know. It is a sign of immaturity to lose your temper. I had a teacher in the eighth grade who said, once a year after I had had a bout uh, with uh, my own temper, she said, what's the use of having a temper if you don't occasionally lose it? (laughs) And so here is Jesus expressing publicly a sense of rage, maybe even legitimizing anger, a sense of expression. This is our Lord, uh, Christ, the Messiah, who goes into the temple and overturns history and in so doing expresses publicly anger. How appropriate. Isn't there just an appropriate time and place from time to time to be angry as hell and to express it? We're in good company when we do. I won't take advantage of that incredible opportunity. (laughs) The week is a week to ponder because the events all have implication for our own psychological and spiritual journeys to Easter. If you focus just on the cleansing of the temple, you will feel cleansed. Interesting, that's what it's called, is it not? What is a temple a metaphor for but your own psyche? And the cleansing of the temple through anger seems to me to be a very appropriate thing to ponder at this time. I'm not recommending or suggesting during Holy Week that you go out and raise hell with somebody, but I do suggest that you get in touch with the instinctual urges that are very important to remaining human. For Jesus to claim his humanity as he begins to move into his divinity is a very important integrating principle. It's very important in our faith for us to hold this paradox consciously even as we move to the symbol of the paradox which is the cross, fully God and fully human for if we seek wholeness it will require us to integrate our humanity and the only way to integrate humanity is through awareness and the only way to be aware of your humanity is to express it. We're also afraid of it, being human. If God in Christ has done anything, God in Christ has said it's okay to be human. God thought enough of humanity to become it himself. And what of the Last Supper? I've lectured for 20 years on the meal ritual and its symbols, let them stand. Not because you know them or because I've been so profound in my lectures, but I don't have time to go through them come Monday, Thursday, and perhaps experience for yourself the sense of that last supper, which is the first supper, and the mysterious presence that emerged in that anamnesis, which is the opposite of amnesia, when he said, remember me, and in your remembering, I will be present. If you remember me, I will be present. And then we have Good Friday, which is the reconciliation of the world to God 
by God in Christ taking all of that evil onto himself, right straight into his hands and feet and into his side. I'll take it all. I will not deny, repress, or project the evil. I simply will embrace it. That seems to me to be a fine, healthy recognition for consciousness for every human being, is to say, I'm not going to deny the evil of the world. I'm not going to deny it exists by trying to be religious and making everybody who isn't religious the object of my own inferiority. But I will embrace evil as a part of I will take it into myself, my hands and my feet, and in my own side, I will experience evil. I will take it into me. About that you will have no doubt, Thomas. Now this sense of what it is that's happening during Holy Week as a conscious journey of our own spiritual journey, it's important to remember that this King of King and Lord of Lords was the one who was rejected, not just by his culture, but by his friends, his best friends, his loved ones. We have successfully made Judas into a symbol of evil, but my guess is, my strong guess is, Judas had a side to him that was very loving and lovable. Jesus wouldn't have called him if he hadn't had some quality he needed. And maybe even the quality of Judas' fear, maybe even the quality of Judas trying to do the right thing, because you realize that what Judas did was the right thing. Those of us who worship being right, wanting to do the right thing, the thing that our mothers and daddies and cultures and religion told us to do, let's do the right thing. And that's what Judas did. He turned in this one who was involved in sedition, who was in blasphemy. Judas did the right thing. And Judas was a righteous man. Not, so it's easy to talk about Judas' betrayal of Jesus. We tend to skim over that the rock of the church was the one who denied Jesus, Peter. Peter was the one who made the confession, the first recognition of awareness of the fact that Jesus was Lord. Who do men to say that I am? That's interesting, but I want to know who you say that I am. And Peter said, for all of us and each of us, and we must confess with Peter, you are Lord, you are my Lord. You are the one who reveals the truth of the mysteries of the universe to me and my nature and the nature of God within me. You are Lord, said Peter. And then within a few days on this journey to Jerusalem, after the first supper or last supper, when Peter was encountered warming himself by the fire, and said, you have an accent, must have been Aramaic, that's similar to this one that is in prison. Do you know him? Three times he denied that he knew him. And as the cock crowed, Peter has not yet parted his lips to proclaim Christ as Lord. This is the rock of the church, the one given the keys. I think it's interesting, though, by the way, and I want to move very quickly through uh, to the reconciliation because you know it's coming. You can't stand it otherwise. You'd die without it. That's why we 
rush around Good Friday to Easter and through Advent to Christmas is because we know that without the hope of the birth and the new birth, we couldn't stand the life. I remind you about what Jesus did with Judas and with Peter most particularly. It is my strong proclamation, and I believe this with every fiber of my body, theological and physical, that had Judas lived, Jesus would have sent him out to represent him. I'm not so sure that we ought to take a risk sometime in this community and found a St. Judas church. Judas is in heaven. When Jesus appeared after his death and resurrection to Peter, the one who denied that he knew him, he asked Peter a very important human question. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And then it was a great call to commission and mission when he said, then if you love me, show me your love by feeding my sheep. Now, Good Friday, of course, we will rehearse in this community, and I invite you to that rehearsal, but I also remind you that that is the time at which inferiority and rejection are all taken on. And all of that about you and all of that about me that has been so repressed and so rejected that has built within me this shadowy area of myself that I cannot accept that Good Friday is the time at which I'm given permission to express who I am, to be conscious of it all, to embrace it all even if it wounds my hands inside, to be reminded that the pain of awareness by accepting one's dark side will scar you. It will. But you get into heaven on your scars, not your medals. That's why doubting Thomas wanted to see Jesus for himself, not because he doubted that he was arisen, he wanted to see if he was still wounded. Because St. Thomas, thank God for St. Thomas, wasn't doubting Christ's resurrection, he wanted to see if we worshiped a wounded God. And we do. And of course, taking on all of that evil and rejection as a part of his own journey in self, then in symbol and in fact, we are given permission to do the same. And there are a hundred ways to do that. The ways by which you will begin to accept yourself are manyfold. But one of the ways is to rehearse the Holy Week and make it your own week. Another way is to remember that Easter chicken of mine, who was rejected, who was exceptional, who probably even carried into my grandfather's chicken pen an inferiority complex. But in the wisdom of age and the confession of my own grandfather, that, that chicken became an eagle and flew away.
And the integrating principle of our faith is that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. We know that. And so that part of you that is so rejected and so inferior is the part that saves you. In our story, it's the rejected, despised, inferior one that saves you. And it will be through your acceptance of your own Easter chicken that you will have the awareness to fly as an eagle. Thank God for the inferior side. It's the side that will save you. Don't forget that. Hold that in your awareness. It's the only way you can live. Don't reject the inferiority. It is a gift by which you will be saved. Now you get in touch with your own. It will look probably a little odd to you. It'll look like a chicken that's been dyed and is trying to become itself. It's the Easter chicken. Amen.